All right, so we're venturing into the series. Let's talk about it. And as uh, was mentioned in the video back in January, we asked you over the course of that month, what are some topics that you're interested in us tackling over this, this series in March? And uh, we received a whole multitude of ideas, and we prayed over them, we sifted through them, and we decided on five that we were going to tackle. And as um, was mentioned in the video, Rich Barr, friend of mine, author, um, he leads this ministry, Threshold to New Life, that uh, puts homeless people in, um, in housing in the Twin Cities. He's a fantastic man of God, um, and God's really called him to a tremendous ministry. He's going to be speaking next week about that issue. Um, and then today, I get to talk about politics. Now, I tried to convince one of my other staff to do that, and they... They all ran out of the room screaming. So um, I am going to uh, venture into this. Uh, but but as, as, we, um, as we go into it, the first question that we're going to address specifically, this was a question that was, that was asked, and, and I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit. Uh, but the question is this. What is my role or what is our role in uniting a divided country, in uniting a divided country? Now, this is certainly an issue and a topic that's, smack dab in our faces, right? I mean, we, we can't go anywhere without seeing political ads or, you know, listening to people talk about it and all that stuff. I mean, we're, we're neck deep in this. And politics, when I mention that word, that can get us a, a little uh, anxious, you know, because uh, that's a difficult topic to address. As a matter of fact, you know, there there's a story of an elderly gentleman who's sitting on a park bench, and it's a warm, sunny day, and he's basking in the glow of the sun, enjoying his time. He's sitting there, and all of a sudden, a little after a little while, another elderly gentleman comes and sits down next to him. And together, they're sitting there, basking in the sun, quiet, looking straight ahead. And then after a little while, one of the, one of the gentlemen lets out a big sigh. <sighs> And the other guy stands up and he says, that's it, if you're going to talk about politics, I'm out of here. <laughs> this can be such a challenging issue. It can be a dicey situation because it creates a lot of emotions, struggles, anxiety, fear, and maybe even anger. But this is a safe place. The church should be a safe place for us to venture into topics that can be difficult to really swallow. But it's not just a safe place, it's also a challenging place. We want to kind of rattle the cages a little bit in our lives and our relationships with one another and with God. We should do what David did in Psalm 139. Search my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. So we need to be challenged by the word of God as well. And so we need, not only need to reflect on ourselves, but we also need to reflect on the church. And part of what we need to do a lot of times when we approach God's word in our time together here is we, we got to kind of, um, we got to damage the cartilage a little bit so that it can heal properly. Now, I'm a runner. I've been running for, for um, uh, about four years now, and I didn't do it for a long time and, or ever. And then it started four years ago, and um, I've ran five marathons, and I'm trying to do four this year in order to raise money for Destiny Rescue, an organization that fights sex trafficking. Um, but, uh, you know, right now I'm running a lot of miles a week, and I'm trying to get ready for this first marathon. And one of the things about running, are there any runners or joggers in the room? 
Those are the crazy people. Yep, okay, all right. You know that when you're running, and I learned this very quickly, you're just going to be injured or hurting at some point. You know, that's just a common existence. And so I was having some knee issues, and I went to the physical therapist, and I remember this lady coming out, and she, it was like one of those medieval kind of leather rolls, you know, where they sit on the table and they roll it out, you know, and it has all these crazy torture pieces of equipment. That's exactly what she did. She had this leather wrap and she laid it on the table and she rolled it out and there are all these metal rods and stuff. And I, I, I thought, what in the world is this lady going to do to me? And she took these rods and she started just scraping my knee, basically. It's called Graston. Has anybody ever had that before? Yeah, it's horrible. Yes. But it did the trick, right? Because it breaks down your cartilage so that it heals properly and it thus heals your knee. And uh, that's what we're attempting to do today. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I don't blame you. Now, the reason it's tough, the reason it's tough is because this is, there, there has really never been a, a moment, there hasn't been a moment in our country's history that's been void of any... Um, uh, like uh, uh, strife or trouble within the political sphere or any uh, corruption except for one moment in our country's history. Now, if you thought that the 12th president of the United States was Zachary Taylor, think again. The 12th president of the United States was actually a name by the man of David Rice Atchison. Does anybody know that name? You messing with me right now? No? All right. I'm impressed. All right. David Rice, David Rice Atchison. He was the 12th president. Let me explain. So Zachary Taylor was scheduled to succeed James Polk in 1849 as the, as the new president. But March 4th, March 4th was a Sunday, and Taylor, being a devout general, he refused to take the oath of office on the Sabbath. Thus, under the Succession Act of 1792, Missouri Senator Atchison, as president pro tempore of the Senate, automatically became president. So this is basically what he did. So that night before uh, Zach Taylor became the president, he basically got his friends together and appointed them to different cabinet members, you know, and they just kind of hung out in the Oval Office and, you know, smoked cigars and had a few drinks and then went to bed. That's the only time in the history of the United States that the presidency has been, has been absent of any corruption or any strife. That's not the reality we live in, this, this kind of, this, uh, the, the roses are red and, and, and rainbows and, and unicorns because our phones and our computers and our TVs are saturated with political ads, just saturated. See, one quick scroll through your Facebook feed, it reveals a whole array of political opinions, doesn't it? And some of them might, might even be yours. And there are demonstrations and rallies from both sides of the political aisle. Today, that seemed like every day, right? And then families and friendships and marriages and churches, they are breaking apart. They are being destroyed because of this issue. So the question remains, how can we as a church and then as Christians, as believers in Jesus, as those who have decided to follow him, make him the leader of their lives, how do we then work to unify a country that seems so set on tearing itself apart? Well, before we 
we go into that question, we're going to build a foundation of some facts here this morning. So I want to lay these facts out and kind of set the stage before we venture into our main passage. The first fact is this. There are people who are Republican and Democrat who are Christian and go to church. I know, right? Mind-blowing. The other fact is this. Those who argue over politics, they don't necessarily love their country any more than others do. Another fact is this. Thinking your party's platform is unflawed is an absolute mistake. Another really important fact is this. Scripture, so God's Word, tells us that we are to pray for our governing leaders. We're going to look at another Paul passage here in just a minute, but Paul also wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4, through where he says, I urge then most of all, or first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, Paul knows that this can be such a divisive thing, and so he goes further, and he says, even kings and all those in authority, so that we may live peacefully and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, this is good, and it pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now we need to consider this story with Abraham Lincoln. There, there was an episode on PBS one time where uh, they came out from the Library of Congress and they came out with a box and it had the items that Abraham Lincoln had on his person when he was assassinated. And what they did then is they opened up this box and they began to set those things out piece by piece. Those items in that box that were on him the night that he was assassinated are this. There was a handkerchief that was embroidered A. Lincoln. Not like a uh, Lincoln, but you know, Abraham Lincoln. There was a country boy's pen knife, a spectacles case repaired with string. There was a purse containing a $5 bill of Confederate money. Interesting. And there were some old and worn newspaper clippings. Now, the, the individual who was, who was taking these items out of the box, his name was Burstein, and he said this, the clippings were concerned with the great deeds of Abraham Lincoln. And one of them actually reports a speech by John Bright, which says that Abraham Lincoln is one of the greatest men of all time. Now, that is indisputable. I mean, you, you, it doesn't even matter what political uh, party you affiliate yourself with. When we think about Abraham Lincoln, we all think of him as... Uh, with great respect and admiration and consider him to be a tremendous person and president. But that wasn't the case when he was actually president. He was a very lonely person. And that, that reflected the suffering and turmoil of his country that was ripped to shreds by the hatred of a cruel and costly war. And so there's something touching about this this tremendous man who had to carry around these newspaper clippings and probably read them on a continual basis to just be affirmed. Loneliness stalks where the buck stops. Loneliness stalks where the buck stops. 
You know, if there was anybody in this room who stood up and began to convey to everybody here the, uh, the sense of uh, persecution, loneliness, isolation that any president experiences, we would rally around them in a second and pray for them. I mean, you think about this. Think when Trump, back in 2016, when he was made president, and then you know Barack Obama before him and Bush before him, when they became president, they immediately came into a reality that there were millions of people in the world that hated them. And there were multitudes of individuals and are that want to kill them. Can you imagine existing in that kind of reality? Regardless of how you might feel about that particular president, and here's a radical thought, Jesus Christ died for Donald Trump. Jesus Christ died for Barack Obama. Scripture also tells us in Romans chapter 3 that we are to respect those in authority. And as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus, we are, we are to seek to be the best citizen that we can be for the sake of God's wrath, our conscience, love, and Jesus. And so what that means is that if you are looking to mock your government leaders on Facebook, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, consider this. A staggering 94% of Republicans, 92% of Democrats, and 85% of uh, independents on Facebook say they have never been swayed by a political post, according to Rantic, a firm that, that sells social media uh, followers. The firm surveyed 10,000 Facebook users who self-identified as Republicans, Democrats, and ind- independents. And the only thing that those opinionated election posts are doing is damaging your friendships. We need to stop this cycle of disrespect. See, social media, one of the biggest reasons, probably maybe the biggest reason why social media can and is so dangerous is because you are not seeing the effect of your words. See, when we're talking to someone face-to-face, we are seeing how it is that what we're saying and doing is affecting the person that we are saying and doing that to. That's not true with social media. And so we can send, we can send ritual, we can send uh, condemnation, we can send criticism out without, without having to worry about seeing how it actually is affecting others. We need to stop the cycle of disrespect. And so back to the question at hand, how can we as the church and then as Christians, as believers in Jesus, how can we seek to unify a country that is just tearing itself apart at the seams? As I prayed about this over the last couple months and prepared for this message here today, I, I was drawn to a passage that we're going to explore here in just a second, but this is, this is where I ultimately landed. So I'm going to give you the answer. I'm going to spoil the ending here. The way that we as a church and then as Christians, as believers, unify a country that is, that is divided is we as a church become unified. 
Now we'll unpack that a little bit. But the only way that we can that we can unify a divided country is that we as a church become unified. You see, Republicans and Democrats, we've already been down that path before. We see it in Scripture, and specifically Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to see a division that exists amongst believers in the church of Ephesus between Jews and Gentiles. Now, Jews obviously being the Israelites, but specifically Jews who are now saved who realize that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead and they've given their life to him. But then also Gentiles, which basically everybody else, who now have that same access to God through Jesus Christ. So we have Jew believers and we have Gentile believers and we have a division in the church of Ephesus that Paul now is addressing in Ephesians chapter 2. So we're going to start there in verse 11. We're going to read the passage in its entirety and then we're going to venture into, actually for the sake of time, we're going to not read it in its entirety, but we're going to go verse by verse. All right. So let's start with chapter 2 verse 11. Chapter 2 verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Okay, we've got to stop. We've talked about this before. When we see a conjunction, what do we got to do? We've got to look at what came before. So anytime we see buts or therefores or ands, we stop and we go before. So in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, this is what Paul writes. He says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now you may have heard that verse before, you may have read it multiple times, but here Paul is saying this. He's saying that the grace that's afforded to all who believe Paul is now, he's talking about that grace, right? But now he's venturing into verses about specifically this division between the Jews and the Gentiles. So he said, this grace that's afforded to us because of Jesus Christ, that's afforded to all, it interacts and should influence and tear down this wall of division between Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles, but then all believers so in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, this is what Paul continues to say, say this. He says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in, in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So in order to underline and underscore, underscore this, this division that Paul's referring to, he's using very specific language. He's using words like separate, excluded, foreigners. Underlining the existence of this division in the church of Christ, okay? So then in verse 13, he says this, but now, now, in Christ Jesus. See, you once were divided, not necessarily because of, of your, 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 your race or your nationality or your political beliefs or any of that stuff, but you were separated because you had a holy God, a holy and perfect God, and an imperfect humanity who, can do, who could not have a relationship with each other, but because of Christ, we were then able to exist with a holy God. Not because of what we, what we did, but because of what 
he did. And so in verse 13, we, who once when we were far away, we have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, despite the differences between Jew and Gentile believers, Paul here is making it clear in this passage that because of God's grace, that we're all brought near. We are all on equal footing here. See, we are, we are all brought from divided, separate, to now unified. And that this unification was only done because of the blood of Christ, because of His great sacrifice. So then I love this. He goes further and he's, yeah, man, he's, he's really now going hard because on, on verse 14 he says this, for he himself is what? Our peace. And he, he has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Paul, Paul now changes his his tune, right? He's not using words like separate or excluded or foreigners, but rather he's now saying our. And that the our is accomplished through Jesus having destroyed the barrier, destroying that, that wall of hostility. And then in verse 15, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And so his purpose, Jesus' purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So how did Jesus destroy the barrier with his blood? Well, Paul says that he set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. He realized that the only way for us to have a right relationship with God was to sacrifice himself, to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what? He makes, the, he makes one out of the two. See, Jesus' purpose was to bring the lost into unity with God. And so the church is then called to respond in being in unity with one another. And in verse 16, Paul says, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. There is no room for hostility amongst God's people. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that Jesus put to death hostility. That means that for those who have given their life to Jesus, we have all been made right through that sacrifice and into our relationship with God. And so there is no room for hostility because Jesus put an end to that. In verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And then in verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Right? There's no exclusion. There's no separateness. But rather what? We are fellow citizens with God's people. And we are all members of His household. Paul begins by using language of division in these verses, and then he follows that by subtly using the word our, and then he goes full board, right, by underlining that all of Christ's followers are fellow citizens, and we are ultimately all part of one 
family. And then most importantly in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Jesus, the chief cornerstone, the great unifier. And then this is beautiful in verse 21. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together that when we become unified, when we set aside the division and the hostility and we become unified under the banner of Jesus Christ, then we rise to become a holy temple to the Lord. And you know who sees us and who takes their cue from us? A divided land. So how is it that we, how is it that we seek and are part of unifying a divided country? We become a unified church. We put aside the hostility that would cause division amongst the fellow citizens, the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then when we do that, we rise up and we become visible. We become visible to a world and a country that is divided and that is focused on the wrong thing. You know, Jesus got angry for only two reasons in the Bible. He got angry in the temple when the money changers were in there and they were selling things in His temple. You know why He got angry in the temple? Because the temple at that time, before He gave His life for you and for me, that's where God dwelt. Where does God dwell now? Now that Jesus died on the cross and provided a way for us to have a right relationship with God, do you know where God dwells now? In us. So Jesus gets angry when we have things in, in this temple of the Holy Spirit that would, that would preclude the priority that Jesus and God demands in our lives. But you know the other reason why Jesus got angry? He was constantly getting upset with the Pharisees. You know, the bad guys of the New Testament. You know why he was getting upset with the Pharisees? Because they were constantly putting other things above Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate unifier. We can get lost in the weeds. But when we get lost in the weeds, we become hostile and judgmental towards one another. we got to stop that. Because the world is watching. And all they're seeing is a bunch of bickering fools who say that it's all about Jesus, but it's not. It's about everything else. But when we become unified under the banner of Jesus Christ, when we say it starts with Him, then together we rise and we become visible 
and attractive and beautiful to a world that desperately needs hope and peace and life everlasting. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and He placed the church in the position to complete His work, but we can only do that once we're unified. Only then, will God, only then will God's people rise up as a holy temple of the Lord for a divided country to see and take notice and then change. And once a divided church becomes unified under Jesus, the chief cornerstone, only then will a unified church unify a divided land. And it starts with Jesus Christ. And it's not just a good man who died for a good cause. No, it's the Son of God who knew that the only way for us to have that right relationship with Him was to obediently sacrifice Himself on the cross, but then not stop there, defeat death and rise from the dead, having defeated death and provided life for us. I want to invite the servers forward because now is the time that we're going to partake in communion together, remembering the great sacrifice that Christ became, thanking Him for His shed blood. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in this moment, Lord, that we would take seriously, Lord, this time. Lord, in Your Word, You instruct us, instruct us to consider the things in which we need forgiveness for, the things that we need to give to You, to release to You, so that we can come before You with, with the bread and the cup in hand, knowing that our hearts and our minds are solely focused on You in thanksgiving, in recognition, and praise for Your tremendous love. We pray this in Your name. Amen.